We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 2. Hear God's word. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who are before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, if you are just joining us today, last Sunday we started a sermon series called The Path, and the path of Jesus. And the idea is that we want to look at Jesus in a way, not through other filters, not even through what Paul or Peter or others had to say. We want to look at Jesus and drink Him straight up for ten months and see where we get as a congregation. So it's, it's a lot. And I know last Sunday um, we all kind of left exhausted, uh, but also like with gladness because we found that there's, there's a lot of good news that Jesus has, not just for people in this room, but people even outside this room. And today we're coming to the second, what is called the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And Whenever I am studying Scripture and trying to take in different commentaries, sometimes it's good to find just a little bit of a release, to, to try to take in other readings. But you don't want to go too far in the readings because maybe like they would kind of take you off course. And so I came across this book to help me in my journey of following Jesus, this path of Jesus. And it's a book that uh, we're going to put on the screen here that maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't. It's called Lamb, The Gospel According to Biff, Christ, Childhood Pal. How many of you have ever heard of this book or read it? All right, a few of you. Fantastic. All right. So, I'm not necessarily recommending this book for you to read right now, right? Don't, don't, listen, don't hear that from me. But I am saying that this has been fun to read. And there is a part where Biff is talking to Josh. Now, Josh is short for Joshua, and Joshua would be Jesus' name in Hebrew, Yeshua. All right? They didn't call him Jesus. They called him Yeshua. Jesus is the Greek word that is used for Yeshua. So, that to say, we have Biff and Josh who are doing life together, and what's happened is, is that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus passed, and an angel named Raziel comes down and resurrects Biff and says, Biff, there's another gospel that the Son wants you to write. And Biff is like, well, how long ago did he initiate the kingdom? And Biff's like, I mean, Raziel's like 2,000 years ago. And so, we find out a lot about Biff because he then hits Raziel in the mouth and then knocks him to the ground and says, you are 2,000 years late. So we have this like character Biff who's not going to be like, let's just put it this way. He makes uh, Peter look very meek, all right? Uh, and if you know anything about Peter, you know Peter was not very meek walking with Jesus. So. Biff is now locked up in a hotel room with this angel, Raziel, who Raziel loves soap operas and pizza. And that's all he does all day long is watch these, and then he's making Biff write this fifth gospel that he believes is really important. And there's an interaction that Biff and Jesus have, that, that Josh have together, where Biff is helping Josh, Jesus, remember that, um, write the Beatitudes, this Sermon on the Mount. And I just thought I'd read a little bit to you from this. So it starts, Biff, I appreciate that you feel obligated to be an advocate for your favorite sins, but that's not what I need here. What I need is help writing this sermon. How are we doing on the Beatitudes? Pardon me? The blessed. Oh, oh, oh. We've got blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the pure in heart, the whiners, the meek, the… wait. What are we giving the meek? Uh, let's see here. Blessed are the meek, 
for to them we shall say, attaboy. That's a little weak. Yeah, you're right, Josh. Okay. Let's let the meek inherit the earth. Why can't you give the earth to the whiners, Josh? Okay, well then, cut the whiners, give the earth to the meek. Okay, earth to the meek. Here we go. All right, Josh. Blessed are the peacemakers, the mourners, and that's it. How many is that? Uh, seven. That's not enough. We're going to need more. We're going to need more, Biff. How about the dum-dums? No, Josh, not the dum-dums. You've done enough for them. Remember, Nathaniel, Thomas. Okay, listen. Bless the dum-dums, for they, um, I don't know, they shall never be disappointed. Listen, Josh, no. I'm drawing the line on the dum-dums. Come on. Why can't we have any powerful guys on our team? Why do we have to have the meek, the poor, the oppressed? Like, why can't we for once have blessed or the big, powerful, rich guys with swords? Because they don't need us. Okay, but Josh, no bless the dum-dums. Okay, well then who then? I got it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Okay, better. But what are you going to give them, Josh? I know. A fruit basket. You can't give the meek the whole earth and these guys a fruit basket, Josh. Okay, give them the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit got that. Everybody gets some. Okay, then share the kingdom of heaven. I wrote it down. Now, we could give the fruit basket to the dum-dums. No, Josh. Sorry, I just feel for them. You feel for everybody. It's your job. Oh, yeah, I forgot. So there you go, the gospel according to Biff, Christ's childhood pal. Now, I read that to you because in that story we find that Biff wants winners, and Josh wants, well, like, he wants the whiners. And this morning we're looking at a passage that says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, there's a parallel verse to this in Luke chapter 6, verse 21, that says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And in the Greek, that word for weep now actually is those who bewail, like those who whine out loud, the whiners. So we have whiners, we have losers. And listen, our culture is infatuated with this idea of pitting the two against the other. Like, culture has inundated us today with this idea that you want to distance yourself as much as possible from the whiners in life, right? People who just keep bewailing out loud. I came across a stupid blog recently, and it wasn't any of yours, don't worry. It was just, well, because I know we all got one, right? So, everybody needs to read my thoughts. But um, this blog that's trying to talk about, like, you either could be a whiner or you could be a winner. And this person decided to make six cases of how you want to be a winner and not a whiner. And here's what he has to say. All right. Whiners focus on the past, but winners focus on the present and future. Whiners cast blame. Winners take responsibility. Whiners react. Winners think. Whiners freeze. Winners take action. Whiners look for validation. Winners lead by example. Whiners waffle, and winners decide. Now, you don't have to search the internet too long for some obscure blog that you don't care about, that has opinions that nobody wants to know, to know that even our culture as a whole, like pop culture, you know the song, Big Boys Don't Cry? And if you're a male and grew up, like, in a culture that told you that, like, you never could even share your tears. If you did, they would call you a sissy, that we've attributed this aspect of being weak to Women? Which is absurd, because we all know who the stronger the two sex are, right? That's right. If you don't know that by now, that's why you're not married. So, well, that's why your marriage isn't working out. <laughs> but this idea is that, like, we want to attribute that being weak and being a whiner is this really bad thing. There's even a book, though, ladies, I don't want to leave you out. There is a a Christian woman, a writer, who actually wrote a book that says, big girls don't whine, getting on with the great life God intends. Please. All right. But we even have it in children's culture, because you either can be a tigger 
or you can be a what? An Eeyore. That's right. Whether from a young age of six all the way up to 60, we are inundated with this thought that you want to be a Tigger, not an Eeyore, that you want to be a winner, not a whiner. And yet here comes Jesus showing up on the scene saying, I'm bringing good news. And my good news in this kingdom that I have, the reign of God is going to include people in groups of people you never would have even imagined. I'm going to start with those who couldn't even take care of themselves, the least of these, the poor and the poor in spirit. Not just those who say, I'm a wretched sinner and please forgive me. It's not just those. It's those who literally cannot get a job and take care of themselves. They've been through so much brokenness in life. And Jesus says, I want those people on my team. And then next he goes, and where are the whiners? Because now I have news for you. And this morning, that's what we want to look at, this news that Jesus has for these whiners. And yet, for us, we distance ourselves as much as possible from the whiners, the mourners, and those who have such deep sadness in their life that it honestly just scares us. And that's what we need to consider this morning. Like, what is it about mourners and whining that we want to do whatever we can to distance ourselves and say, no, I want to be a winner, not a whiner? Three things I want us to consider this morning. First, I want us to look at the fear that comes with the sadness that we so want to avoid. And then I want us to talk about the gift that comes with this sadness. And then lastly, I want us to look at this, this presence, this comfort that actually can come with the sadness in life. So let's start by looking at this fear that comes with sadness. It's important to remember that Jesus is Jewish. He's not American. He's not thinking as an American. He's not thinking as a Westerner. He comes from, he's not even making all this happen just for you one day in the West. He's actually even thinking about you in the West one day. Like, he is just an ancient Near Eastern man who is preaching out of his culture and context. He is a Jewish man, which means that he's coming from a Jewish culture, and within that Jewish culture, it's important that we all remember this, that they're different from us. That there wasn't this idea that they needed to separate their head and their heart and their hands. It all went together. When they talked about the heart, it was both not just like the thing and the organ pumping the blood. It's not just their feelings. It was that it was their heart and their head and their hands. All of it worked together. And you have to remember, God's people, Jewish people, were very in touch with their feelings, with the world around them. Even their name, Israel, comes from this place and moment when Jacob wrestled with God, and God struck him on the hip, and then Jacob lent the rest of his life, and he was given a new name, and it says, the one who strives with God. That was Israel's identity, that they were people who strove in life, that they were always wrestling with life. And there was a concept for them that they lived out of, and that is, life truly is tragic. Like, it's got to be tragic when you've been conquered by kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. You don't look around and go, man, my freedom, I take it for granted. No, they never could because they barely were ever free. Whether it was Darius or Cyrus, whether it was Alexander, whether it was Caesar, they constantly were coming under the thumb of oppressive rule. They were the minorities. They were those who were not privileged. The Bible wasn't written for those who were privileged. It was written for those who came from a broken place where they never could get out of it if they wanted to. And it's important because we read it, for the most part, in this room as privileged people. You don't have to think about, for the most part in this room, how the color of your skin affects if you get a job or not. You don't have to think about whether or not the color of your skin or your socioeconomical place in life will let you in or out of a school. The Bible is written for people who did not come from privilege, but people who came from brokenness that they couldn't get out of. And these people, these Jewish people, were in touch with the tragedy of life around them. They couldn't escape it. And so when Jesus steps up and He goes, I'm going to preach to you what this kingdom is about, He's actually preaching good news to them. He's preaching something they can wrap their minds around, sink their teeth into. And even for Jesus, this context is important. You see, Jesus is around 30 years old when He gets up and starts preaching this sermon. 
And yet for Jesus, when he looks across this crowd of men, women, and children, both Jew and Gentile, both who are God's people and those who are the irreligious atheists, he looks across the crowd and he realizes for a lot of people today, they would have had a son around his age if it wasn't for Jesus. It's a heavy moment. You may not know this, but when Jesus was two years old, his, uh, his father had a vision from an angel to say, go to Egypt because Herod the Great is jealous and he wants to kill your son. So Joseph packs up the family and they go to Egypt. And then the, the wise men try to deploy and divert Herod, but eventually Herod learns the truth that they've lied to him that there actually is a Messiah who's come, and that was a threat to Herod. So Herod sent out an edict to kill every boy ages two and under. Can you even imagine that massacre? Can you even imagine the brutality of this? That someone who's supposed to be taking care of you as a king murders and slaughters your son. There were supposed to be many more boys, many more men around the age of Jesus when Jesus gets up to preach around his age, and yet they weren't because of Jesus. And Jesus is standing here, sitting here on this mountain. He's preaching this message. Can you even imagine the weight he's feeling? That he's about to preach a message to people who've lost loved ones because of him. This man is in touch. He is in touch with his sadness in that moment. Let me read from you just in Matthew chapter 2, the passage. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. A lot of you have heard of the the great scholar C.S. Lewis, maybe the most influential Christian writer of the 20th century. And um, Lewis never married, really until, he didn't marry until late in life. He was always single until he, in correspondence via letters, made, met a, a woman named Joy Davidson, who was from the States. And uh, Joy was coming out of a very harsh marriage um, where her husband was an addict and he never was willing to put her and the kids above his addiction. And so she eventually left him and she actually came to England And in 1956, her and Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, married. A year later, Joy found out that she had bone cancer. And then in 1960, Joy died. Lewis waited until late in life to marry, and when he finally did get married, his wife died just three years later. And he wrote a book to work out his grief. It was called A Grief Observed. I'm just going to read an excerpt from you, for you here. We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not imagination. It's different when you're simply hearing about sadness and grief, and pain, and then when you finally experience it, isn't it? Like you want to be with a person, but so many times you wonder why you see a person going through hurt and pain in life, and you tell them you're sorry, but you sound like a Hallmark card, and you walk away and forget all about it. That you actually never could be with that person, you just simply want to tell them you're sorry and move on. I don't want that person invading my life until, until, until the day comes when you've lived life long enough. And that grief comes your way. Or maybe the grief has come your way, and you've just done a good job avoiding it. Lewis goes on to say that no one ever told me 
that grief felt so like fear. I know for me, part of my journey has been trying to come in touch with just how much sadness is a part of my own life. You know, you've heard plenty of stories from me about my childhood. I grew up with a single parent. I grew up in a um, very fundamental Christian home. I grew up knowing that I was different. I grew up experiencing a lot of racism, people calling me vulgar names in middle school. I grew up with a lot of just brokenness of life, really not knowing who I was, where I belong, and on top of that, I didn't have my father around to even try to bring some guidance in all this. And I remember whenever times would get really hard and my mom would see me in a really down state, she would clap her hands three times and say really loud, happy, happy, happy. So I'd try that. And I tried to take that on with me in life, that whenever I saw really bad things happening around me, I tried to give people this assurance like, your suffering just simply proves that God is present. It's going to be okay. But that didn't last very long, because eventually I came in touch, well, eventually I got married. And I I met a a wife and a woman in Suzanne that wasn't going to let me, like, run from those things. And I remember when I finally started getting in touch with more of the sadness in life, it was very scary, like almost overwhelming. See, I think whenever we come in contact with just the depth of what sadness really is, because here's what sadness is. Here's your picture. Sadness is you in the middle of the ocean without a life raft. You can't escape it. It is what it is. Now, here's the question. Are you going to try to swim out of it? Or are you going to try to lay your head back and float it and let it take you somewhere? And so many times we either try to escape sadness instead of embrace sadness. We try to get out of it instead of dig into it. And whenever we try to get out of it, we at first try to simply like avoid it by being positive. Happy, happy, happy. Life is okay. It's going to work out. But any person here who has tried any of those platitudes knows that that won't last very long. Because eventually you run into situations that your platitudes like can't outwork. So whenever that doesn't work, then we end up going to places like, well, I'm just going to deny it by numbing myself with anything I can around me. Whether it's food, drink, sex, whether it's screen time on a phone or an iPad or a TV, or whether it's work, whatever we can do to numb ourselves to just how sad life is around us, we'll do that. And then we get to this place where if we can't do those two things, then we try to face it head on and say this, I'm going to fix this problem. Any of you been around a fixer before? Yeah? Yeah, you, didn't, you weren't for very long, right? Like, those are not the kind of people you want to hang out with very long. Like, hey, how you doing? Man, I'm having a really hard time in life. Well, you know what? You just need to trust Jesus, and He's going to provide everything you need. And you're like, get out of here. Who are you? Like, okay, delete in that friendship. And anyone in here who ever tries to fix another person, if you've wondered why you don't have friends, that's it. If you wonder why people actually can't get close to you, that's it. Even in our marriages, this is such the thing we do, right? Your spouse comes home with a problem, and what do you want to do immediately? You want to fix it. You want to give advice. You want to give direction. I've never done this before, but Suzanne's done it to me. So, but like, those are the things we try to do. No, 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 no. You're looking at this the wrong way. Like, Keep on the sunny side of life. It's going to work out. But that is like the least human thing we actually can do. We become like this Jesus robot that is completely repulsive and nobody wants to be around. And the reality is this, Jesus wasn't even that way. See, this is really important you see this. Somebody made a, I've heard a few jokes. You guys like to joke. I heard this joke. Like, so we're going to talk about Jesus for 10 months and then not talk about him anymore? And I'm like, good joke. Okay, let me explain why I'm talking about this way that we're saying, okay, we're going to talk about Jesus for 10 months. We usually want to talk about the birth, death, or resurrection of Jesus. But the four Gospels are all about his life. 
And if we're not careful, we'll end up with what N.T. Wright said is an empty cloak. That Jesus didn't just live this life that you couldn't live. That's a lie. He lived a life that you were meant to live. That's why He came and lived it. Now, He just lived it to perfection, and that's what you can't do. But you and I have to be willing to look at His life and go, I need that in my life. What else are you going to imitate? Don't imitate me. We have to imitate Him. So we're looking at Jesus' life because we don't want an empty cloak. And what Jesus does is He looks at someone who is mourning, even mourning because of Him, and says, blessed are you, fortunate are you, God is on your side, and one day you will be comforted. You are part of my kingdom in this reign and rule. So we try to escape it, but let me ask you, what would happen if we actually just tried to embrace it? Like just tried to embrace this reality of sadness. In the first three centuries, um, after the apostles, they had all these disciples who started moving out to other places, mainly north of Palestine, Israel, into Syria, and then into Rome, into the Greco-Roman world. And the early church fathers were broken up into mainly two groups. You had the Greek fathers and you had the Syrian fathers. Now Greek fathers were those who said, okay, we're going to interact with our head with Scripture and really understand this. You all in this room are a result of the Greek fathers. The West was built upon Greek philosophy and concepts of engaging the head, the world around us, the things we value. And history was written by those Greek fathers, and yet there's another group of fathers, the Syrian fathers. And these fathers were more interested in how you engage the heart. See, what's interesting is they just took and broke up what the Jewish people were all about instead of keeping it together. One said we're going to go with head, another said we're going to go with heart. The Syrian fathers were so into your humanity and how God has wired you from the inside out, they actually proposed that tears be made a sacrament. Crazy. That your tears as a human would be made a sacrament. One of the early Syrian fathers even said this, until you've cried, you don't know God. Like the Syrian fathers were very serious about being in touch with the tears of your humanity. Because until you really can live with the grief of this world around you, you'll never get to a God who's faithful enough to be with you in it. They understood that. And thus Jesus is talking to a people who, at the end of the day, are going to run out of head. They don't need more head logical explanations. Well, you know, God's going to show up here, and the Messiah, He's going to make all things right, and you just kind of know in your head, okay, yeah, I get it, but like, what about the things in my life that are so undone, I don't know what to do with them except to avoid them? And Jesus shows up and says, my kingdom isn't about simply how logically you work out my reign is here, but you're going to experience it in the, in the depths of your being. Richard Rohr, a writer, theologian, said this, Jesus praises the weeping class those who can enter into solidarity with the pain of the world and not try to extract themselves from it. The rich one spends life trying to make tears unnecessary and ultimately impossible. Weeping over our sins and the sins of the world is an entirely different mode than self-hatred or hatred of others. Those who weep, listen now, those who weep, who really weep and get this, allows one to carry the dark side, to bear the pain of the world without looking for perpetrators or victims, but instead recognizing the tragic reality that both sides are caught up in. Just look at that for a minute. There's so much there. See, when we see somebody who's dealing with so much sadness, we see a dark side and we can't take that. We try to get away from it. We try to get them out of it. But that's not the problem. The problem is when you try to get out of it, because it's not until someone can truly see the dark side of this world, the shadow side of their own life and the world they live in, the tragedy of sin. And I don't mean like personal sin, like, whoops, I looked at something and I shouldn't have. 
Cornelius Plantica, he said that sin is culpable disturbance of shalom. It's culpable disturbance of shalom. The world, Jewish people believe, the world was woven together in shalom, in wholeness, in beauty, this tapestry that was meant to be added to by humans for eternity. And yet sin is when you start taking the threads of that tapestry and unweaving it. It's disturbance of shalom, disturbance of the world around us. That's what sin is. Sin isn't something that keeps you just simply out of heaven. That's such a narrow way to look at it. Sin is the thing that destroys your own life and this world around you. We need a bigger vision of it. That when we go through hardship in life, we go, oh my gosh, the sin, not like you sinner and you devil. It's like, gosh, look what sin has done to our world. Look what sin does to my own life. It's disturbing shalom. God's trying to weave it together. That we need to be willing to sit with this unweaving of shalom to see its disturbance, to weep over it. Have you ever just simply had feelings of sadness around not just how sinful you can be, but even how broken the world can be around you? Like if you don't cry over innocent shootings of men and women in our country, of law enforcement in our country, the perpetrators and victims in our country, if you don't cry over that, you don't get sadness. You're trying to avoid it. This just shows how removed I was from my sadness. I remember in 2001 waking up on September 11th, and I at this time was getting ready to go work overseas as a missionary, just got out of college, and it was around 8.30 in the morning. I remember my mom looking at the screen, just staring and standing there, and she said, Robin, oh my gosh. And of course, the, the attack and terrorism, the two towers, 3,000 lives lost. I remember looking at that and walking away and going back to sleep. Just how out of touch I was from the brokenness of life. You ever just looked at something so broken and walked away and then went on to your business? Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad we can't look at the world around us, others who are mourning, and go, that's so dark, that's so heavy, that's not okay, I wish it was different, I can't fix it, I can't escape it, but how do I embrace it? God, it's so scary to embrace it. I remember at the, I remember going into May of this year, Suzanne and I and Charlotte were going to the beach, and we were in the midst of everything going on here as a church, and um, I remember getting to the beach and just wanting to like, like check out food, drink, fantasy, you name it, just wanted to check out. And then when I didn't let myself check out the way I wanted to check out, I remember just having like a lot of rage. Like rage like, like I'm picking on Suzanne. Like, hey, you shouldn't be doing that, or hey, that's the wrong way to do it, or I couldn't stand being around Charlotte, and, and I would get mad at her, or I'd raise my voice, and there was just all kind of things. And it took a couple of days for me and Suzanne to talk through all that. Like, what is going on here? And it wasn't really until I got back from the vacation, and I started doing some more inventory and writing and and praying and bumping up against my hard ceilings in life, people who speak into my life, reflecting my life off the walls around me, people who walk with me in life. And I realized there was a few things happening. One, I was really angry and afraid and sad that my daughter wasn't progressing in her verbal and cognitive skills the way I saw other kids. That whenever I'd see her interact with other kids, she just wasn't talking as much. We are coming to find out there's a sensory process disorder that she has. It's not something that's going to last necessarily forever, but it is for now. What I wanted was this perfect child, and I didn't want to reflect on my bad parenting, or did I let her watch Doc McStuffins too many times? Like, what have I done? I've broken my child. I didn't want to deal with that sadness. I didn't want to look at that sadness. It was too much. 
I remember as well being sad over the fact that one of my closest friends, if not my closest friends of 19 years of relationship had in many ways been dissolved. Someone I got to serve alongside with up here, wanting to make a phone call and not really able to. I didn't want to think about that. I didn't want to think about the sadness of life around me. I just wanted to escape it. And what I was left with was rage. And here's where rage comes from. Rage is what you do when the fear around you is more than you can handle. And when you can't control it, all you want to do is just like rage out on it. That's what rage is. Like rage is what you do at 3.15 p.m. when you're on Poplar Avenue, all right? You can't control it. You want to get out of it. And so you just bang the steering wheel. It's like that kind of thing. But there's something about simply embracing the sadness we're in because, listen, friends, until we embrace the sadness of life around us, we'll never be able to find the thing that we're just like meant to have, and that is acceptance of life on life's terms. You can't change it. You can't fix it. You can't escape it. You just simply have to be willing to engage it. Chip Dodd said it this way, sadness speaks directly to our need to grieve for what is gone. If we grieve genuinely, we eventually come to accept life on life's terms. Through grief, we find comfort and deeper wisdom as we move about in life in the absence of who or what was lost. From that acceptance, we find healing. However, if we can't acknowledge how much what we've lost means to us, then sadness will deepen because the need to honor our losses with grief won't go away. What are you trying to avoid in your life? What do you keep running from? Here's how you know if you're running from it. Whenever somebody gives you bad news, you try to give a sunny disposition on everything. That's not because you have a great personality. It's because something about you keeps trying to escape just the tragedy of life. Why don't you just keep your mouth shut and sit with the person? In Jewish culture, it's called Shavat. Whenever there was mourning, you didn't walk into a house of mourning and give advice or comfort. You simply sat there with them and cried. They actually had professional grievers that you could hire that went around and played instruments and that sang sad songs. That's how in touch Jewish people were with their sadness. And yet we do whatever we can to avoid it. No, 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 honey, it's going to be okay. It may not be. Like it just might not work out. You may not get to where you want in life. You may not be healed from that thing. You may not find the friendships you're looking for. I don't know whatever it is. It may not happen. I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but it may not happen. And until we learn to live with life on life's terms, the sadness of life, we're never going to get to the gifts of that, and that is true freedom, acceptance of what is, not having to control things. But I want you to know something. Jesus doesn't stop short of simply saying, just accept life on life's terms. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who weep now, for one day they will laugh. What is he trying to say? We have to remember that Jesus is using three elements to teach from. You're going to, use, you're going to hear us, all the teachers up here, whether it's Drew or Jamin or myself, talk about this, that Jesus had an above ethic and narrative, he had a beyond ethic or narrative, and he had a below. What do I mean with that? He would pull from the Torah, the above. The Torah came down from God. Whenever Jesus was thinking through the grid of life, he had one part of it that came from above. He had one part of it that came from below, like human wisdom. That's a good thing. That's why we had the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, even the book of Job is pulling from the wisdom of the earth. But Jesus also had a beyond view reality. And all those three tied together is what crafted His message. Now, there were two things I heard over the last few weeks. One is this, what are we, call, what are we going to talk about after we're done in ten months? No more Jesus? The second thing is this. It's important, um, I want you to know something. 
that all the elders, we spend time talking to each other and, and reflecting on things, what's happening in our church. And I've had a few people mention, like, I'm just not hearing the gospel enough. I want to address that. Not shamefully, like not to shame, I just want to address something. The gospel is bigger than justification by faith. It's important you know that. Yes, you are justified by faith in Christ. There is a connection you have by His blood being enough for you. But the gospel is more than just an individualistic view in reality. The gospel, first and foremost, is a corporate reality for the world to embrace and see. That the gospel is not simply a justification by faith, it's also sanctification by faith, it's also glorification, it's also welcome those who are poor and poor in spirit. And welcome those who are the whiners and not the winners in life. That's also the gospel. I'm not even making it up. I'm just like drawn from what it says right here. Now here's what I want to say. For the last 10 years, there's been an inundation in our culture that the gospel was coming from really just kind of one particular area. And that would be around justification by faith. And I want you to know, you are going to be uncomfortable for the next 10 months if that's all you're looking for in the gospel. And you're going to be challenged because the gospel is more than you simply being individually saved and going to heaven. Which not, that's not even like the right narrative in the first place. Like you're not, you're going to be here on earth. We'll get to that. You're, you're staying on earth, okay? <laughs> like at the end of the day, it's more than just our individual connection. That's not to shame that individual connection. That's important. And Christ City Church has really been built on preaching that kind of gospel. I just want you to know that if you feel uncomfortable from time to time, we're not going off the rails. We're just talking about Jesus more and more. And there's more to Jesus to talk about. We're not going off the rails. This isn't some kind of like social gospel. And at the same time, it is a social gospel because it's for everyone, even those who aren't here. So if we have a message on good news that isn't like hitting you today, that's okay. I'm sure there will be next week. But remember this, there's a good chance that if someone came in here so weighed down by their sadness, so weighed down by how poor they are in life, that was good news for them. And Jesus has a wide enough message for all of us. Sometimes we have to be willing to embrace that and see that. Now, off my soapbox, let me step back to this. Thank you. Um, that there is an immediate part to the gospel and a future part to the gospel. Now, here's what I want us to get across. Here's what I want to end with. I want to land this. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Really interesting, this word, they will be comforted. It has a future eschatological like reality to it. Like you're not necessarily going to be comforted right now, but one day you will be comforted. He is proclaiming good news. So what is this good news? A few words I want to throw up on the screen for you, a few Greek words. First word is this. Here's what he's saying in the Greek. Well, here's what the Greek is saying that he said in Hebrew. The word it is parakaleo. It means to come alongside. Here's what he's saying. Blessed are you who are whining and mourning, bewailing right now for someone will come alongside you. He doesn't even list who it's going to be. He just said someone's going to come alongside you. Second word, parakletos. Same family of words. This word means comforter. Guess who's called the parakletos? There we go, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Bible scholar in the back. So he's saying, parakaleo, someone's going to come alongside of you, and parakletos. And so we go, the good news is the Holy Spirit. And yes, that is true. But wait, we're not done. There's a third word. The word is paraklesis. I don't even know if we have that to put up there. Oh, we do. Fantastic. I threw it out there on them last minute. Hey, give it up for our AV team. They deal with so much. 
I went back there last minute and said, I got one more Greek word for you before I go up. Can you throw it up? They're like, yeah, we got it. The third word is paraklesis. It means to comfort. Parakaleo, to come alongside. Parakletos, to comfort. Paraklesis, to comfort. So we have to come alongside, comforter, and to comfort. Now, I want to show you a passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all, and the word here is parakaleo, comfort, who paraklesis comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be so that we may be able to what guess what it's the third word paraklesis others who are in any affliction with the what we've received parakaleo the comfort which we ourselves were comforted by God for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings so through Christ we shall share abundantly in comfort too if we are afflicted it is for your paraklesis and salvation. And if we are comforted, if we experience parakaleo, it is for your paraklesis, which you experience when you patiently endure the sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. There's no parakletos here. There's no comforter in here. We have to come alongside, and we have to comfort, but we have no comforter. Why? Because you are. Okay. You're the good news. See, when you experience the good news, you become the good news. When you experience the Holy Spirit, the Comforter coming alongside you, then you come alongside others and they go, I was looking for an answer to life. And you show up. And you're not trying to fix anything. You're just like being with the person. You're the good news. You are the person who brings comfort. It's wild. Somehow, some way, you are the representation of God. You are the comforter. You're the Holy Spirit with that person. It's the Holy Spirit working through you. So here's the trick. How are you actually going to be that kind of person to other people? You've got to stop trying to fix your life. You can't. And you've got to start running away from how broken and sad life is. You can't outrun it. At some point in time, you've got to give in to it. Life is sad and tragic, but guess what? God is faithful. And when you experience that, now you have something to give to others. Not enough amens. Now you have something to give to others. Here's the thing. People outside this room are so used to Christians showing up and giving platitudes instead of actually comfort. They're used to people leaving this room and saying, you're going to go to hell, and you need to kind of get your junk right and come to church with me. And they're like, yeah, but I'm a human being, and like, I'm going through this in life. Like, I just lost my job. I just lost my mom. My wife just left me. One of my children just died. And you're telling me to come get saved and go to heaven? What are you talking about? Now, how about this? How about you just show up and be with the person? But here's why we can't show up and be with people, because we actually don't know how to be with ourselves and see that God is trying to comfort us. We think we've figured out how to fix life. So of course we don't have a good news for people outside this room, and yet we do. In your bulletins, Dallas Willard said, as those who mourn see the kingdom in Jesus, enter it and learn to live in it. They find comfort, and their tears turn to laughter. Yes, they are even better off than when they were before their particular disaster. I know a lot of our church has embraced recovery, the recovery community here in Memphis. I love that. It's a beautiful thing. One of the promises that's given within the recovery community when you start really living this life out of sobriety, recovery in your life says that one day you'll wake up and realize that you will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Isn't that crazy? 
Like, you actually one day could like not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it because somehow, some way, your life is like somehow being used and better off now. Even though all the disaster that happened before. And here's what this says, that humans are never without hope. That we have a God who will come be with us in the midst of our tragedy. And when we're willing to see that, embrace it, live in it, not run away from it, not deny it, lean into it, and let there be the healing that comes from it, now we have a message that the world can hear. Now we actually have more good news to share. So I'm going to pray. Band's going to come up. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do as you come down to the table this morning, as Tim walks us through this. What kind of mourning and sadness weeping and whining in life are you running away from? What do you keep trying to deny? What's that fear that's so heavy in you? And what if there's a God big enough to be in the ocean with you in your sadness? Like, what if there's a God big enough to be with you in your sadness and that you're going to find that one day you're going to find more comfort, there's more laughter even to all the wailing? Even before I came up, Diane Morgan, she's over our prayer team. She goes, I just had this picture that of God laughing, like of just God laughing with joy. That was it, right? What if God sees a future for you that you can't see? And there's like laughter, not like scolding and making fun of it, like laughter like, child, I see so much joy in your future. If you'll just let go of what you're trying to control here and now, like let life happen and know that I'm with you, I'm alongside you in it. Friends, then you'll be able to be like good news to others. Let's pray.